As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you know, I don't know what's going on right now with the broader. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so I'll let you okay. finish. Well, that, I, there are so many different ways that sentence could have so gone. We could start every episode with, I don't know what's going on. Anyway, I don't know what's going on right now with the broader American economy, but I do sense that the tech industry, Silicon Valley, is in a real downturn. It seems so. Um I shouldn't laugh because obviously for a lot of people, this is very, very serious. We've had a number of tech companies coming out and saying that they're going to be firing literally thousands of people in this downturn. And what's kind of remarkable about it is this is something a lot of people were kind of expecting. You know, these are all growth companies. They tend to do very, very well during periods of low interest rates. Once rates start going up, we see the pressures uh, sort of added on, and then we see these cyclical downturns. Right. And, you know, like the story of the 2010s was tech was really the first industry to come sort of roaring out of the gate in that recovery. And the broader U.S. economy never had a great recovery in that decade, but tech was absolutely booming. And so there is this flip. And, you know, the other thing is like, when I think of Silicon Valley or tech, you know, I have certain ideas of like what a boom looks like mm-hmm. and all these like amazing perks and free dry cleaning and free steak dinners if you stay at the office and free, free dr- bean bags. Yeah, free bean bags, all of it. I don't have a great intuitive sense about what a downturn looks right. like in Silicon Valley. Right. And I think it's never really been promoted as part of Silicon Valley. It's mm-hmm. always, you know, come to this place, create a startup out of your garage or whatever, and become a billionaire and enjoy all this money and all these perks. But as we just mentioned, it is a cyclical industry. There are as many downturns as there are upturns yeah. at this point, And yet they don't get as much attention. No, there's definitely, it's a boom bust industry. And, you know, I've talked about many times, my first memory of markets was during the dot-com bubble. And then there was the bust and we sort of forgot about tech for a while and all these companies, but they kept uh, plugging away. But yeah, I don't know really what happens to this industry in a downturn. And I think it's like an interesting question. I don't know when it'll rebound, but right now we're definitely in one. Yeah. So we have really the perfect person to talk to us about previous downturns. That's right. So we met this guest recently. We were out at the uh, Berkeley Forum on Corporate Governance, and we talked to her there, and we just had to talk to her again 
for the podcast itself because it's very interesting someone who's very informed on this question we're going to be speaking with margaret o'mara she is a professor of american history at the university of washington and she is also the author of the book the code silicon valley and the remaking of america so a great person to talk to about the history of the valley the history of tech and all the changes it's undergone so uh margaret thank you so much for coming on the odd lots podcast it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we had to, after chatting with you recently out in San Francisco, we had to have you on the show. So, mm-hmm. you know, we do have this idea of like what 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 tech and what these firms do in the uh, the boom times. And it sounds pretty great. It sounds pretty fun. Makes everyone want to flock to San Francisco or, uh, you know, the Valley and be part of this world. But uh, we don't really talk about the other side as much. We Instead, we sort of forget about it. But obviously... There, for every boom, there must be a bust. Yeah, what goes up must come down, <laughs> which was actually, a, I was reminded, of, it was a, that was a, a theme song of one of the many commercials of Pets.com, which was maybe the emblematic dot bomb story of the last big, notable downturn in tech, which was the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust. Yeah, this is a cyclical industry. It grows fast, grows hot. And uh, and then there's a cooling period. So I mentioned interest rates in the intro, but, you know, I don't think it just boils down to that. Can you maybe talk about what is the common thread Mm. in terms of sparking bus in tech? Like, what is it that tends to set these things off, sets the industry into contraction? Yeah. Well, there's some things that are very particular to the industry, and then there are macroeconomic conditions that are that are sparking it, too. It's usually, you know, they're always working in combination. I think a common thread is there's a big market run-up um, and a lot of froth and excitement and, and excitement about, you know, companies that are, are legitimately, you know, minting money uh, by doing, usually by doing something new and a new class of products. And also around that, surrounding that, some some businesses where the you know fundamentals aren't as strong and they're being buoyed by this general enthusiasm in the market. We saw this in the 60s with what was then called space age stocks, all these transistorized electronics that these companies, kind of the first gen of Silicon Valley companies that were very much attached to defense electronics and NASA and the space program, you know, so you have a little, you have some froth. And then, of course, macroeconomic conditions are, are shaping that, too. You have low interest rates that are uh, giving, you know, incentivizing investors to go and play the stock market. And, and tech seems like a good uh, a good bet. And there's also, you know, a, a usually a, a boom is fueled by an entry of a new group of companies and particularly platforms and products that are high growth, whether it be the space age stocks, the 60s, or the personal computers of the early 1980s, or the commercial internet of the 90s, or more recently, and and for quite some time, this is a very long boom we're coming off of, you know, the, the big platform companies of uh, quote unquote, big tech. So you kind of need this sort of like, nice confluence of story and macro, like you need the investor enthusiasm mm-hmm. Low rates probably help in some way, but there also has to be like a thing that people get excited about for because low rates itself. What did you know? We were talking about like and kind of joked about like the bean bags and all the perks. Mm-hmm. Has that always been part of the booms? Like, how long have they been sitting on bean bags out there? <laughs> They've been sitting on bean bags for a while. Um, I mean, the bean bag goes back to the early seventies, uh, and and you know it's this it's this interesting kind of 
But, you know, if we think about maybe not beanbags themselves, but this idea of a different sort of corporate culture, a more informal corporate culture, non-hierarchical, that goes way back. I mean, in the in case of the Valley, you know, you can maybe start that with Hewlett and Packard and the famous HP way, the what they called management by walking around. No corner offices, shirt sleeves, tie, ties, still had ties, but we took off the jacket. Um, and this was in the 1950s. You know, Hewlett Packard was, you know, founded in a garage, an iconic garage startup in 1939. By the 50s, it's a publicly traded company. It's extremely successful. And Hewlett and Packard are very kind of self-consciously working against the organization man paradigm that was the, you you know, that was corporate capitalism in the 1950s. So, so that, um, you know, setting that, creating a culture where management and the, uh, the rank and file engineers are um, all kind of on the same side is, uh, is taking the culture of the engineering lab and transferring that into a corporation. And it also was, uh, you know, I think philosophically, too, it was, this was the high watermark of private sector unionization. People like, like Dave Packard, were very much against unions. Just saw them as, you know, that's a sign that something's wrong with a company if if you can't find a way to get along. And that instead, that employees of all rank should be rewarded with stock options. They should have a stake in the ownership of the company. So it was a different model. And that, that kind of percolates through. I mean, HP, there are a lot of HP veterans that go on to start venture firms, start other companies, and they bring that laid-back California, more sort of ostensibly egalitarian corporate culture with them. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you give us some examples of what companies tend to do during an industry downturn? Like, is there a typical playbook that stands out to you with your, you know, decades of um, historic knowledge? Mm. Or like... Does it tend to vary by firm and and firm culture? So, for instance, I could see you know if your business starts coming under pressure, there's obviously an incentive to cut back on spending, maybe start to trim your workforce and lay people off. But there might also be some companies that are especially aggressive and decide we're going to try to ride this out as much as we can and just use this as an opportunity to take market share. 
Yeah. And I think it depends a lot on the financial position you're coming into the downturn with, and, and particularly if you're an early stage company. I point to Google as the, you know, the, the ultimate example of a company that benefited from a downturn, notably the dot-com bust. Google's founded in 1998, kind of late on the cycle of the hype cycle of all these dot-com startups. And they secure this unbelievable seed round of $25 million, split 50-50 between Kleiner and Sequoia, which, you know, these big firms don't do deals together, <laughs> but everyone wanted an in. And so they had, you know, they, they kind of had this foundational capital. And then the all of these other companies go out of business. And two things that you need back then in 2001 or so is you need people. Every You always need people. Um, and so Google was able to acquire engineers for less than they would have had to pay otherwise. And also just, you know, they talent was now available. There was more oxygen in the labor market. And they also needed computing power. This is before cloud computing, right? This is when you had to go buy a piece of hardware and server blades and, and high-powered uh, CPUs to, to power your search engine. And so they were able to do that as well. They were the, sort of their capital expenditures ultimately gave them a lot more runway and a lot more time to not have to turn a profit. That was, you know, they were really advantaged by that. And, you know, I think thinking about kind of company behavior in a downturn, you know, we see when we talk about Silicon Valley, oftentimes we're thinking about the very big consumer facing platforms, right? The ones that ordinary people were that were interacting with every day. And there are many different Silicon Valleys. There are many different parts of the of the whole industry. If you look at the dot com Bust, for example, there were companies, uh, you know, semiconductor companies that were still hiring people. There were other, you know, hardware kind of the, the people who were doing the fundamentals were still there was that the transition to uh, commercial Internet was still very much underway. There was a lot of real there were so many, you know, important use cases that had been proven in the early days of the commercial Internet that there was still a lot to be done and a lot of business to be had. It was just these very giant, you know, splashy, consumer-facing websites and, and platforms that went out of business that were the ones that got a lot of the attention. What about, you know, just in terms of so layoffs and other restructurings, do the beanbags go away? Do, do the ties come on? Like, like is there a sort of, I don't know, re-unliberalization of culture in a downturn where it's like, okay, we, ha we have to get serious here. Yeah. I, you know, I think that the, uh, I wouldn't say the ties come back on. There have been times when the ties come back on. You know, I think the most, the standout example is is Apple, if you go back to the 80s. The mid-80s Apple when uh, it's growing fast, John Scully is brought in from Pepsi as this literally the, the guy in the suit. Right. So that's a great um, example because sure. we have like, right, because we all have this perception of Steve Jobs and then they bring in a Pepsi executive to run it. Yeah, the guy who sold sugar water. Yeah, there was lots of lots of grumbling about that. And then, of course, kind of spectacularly and famously, infamously, he and the board fire Steve Jobs shortly thereafter because Mac sales, you know, the, the Macintosh comes out in 1984 with a splash. We all remember that Super Bowl ad, the iconic <laughs> Super Bowl ad and the Mac being this game changer. But what's forgotten in that story? is that it had a big splash, but actually did not, it kind of flatlined a bit. It wasn't another Apple II, which was the first giant hit that Apple had. Um, and Apple was getting, IBM had gotten into the personal computer business, remember, with those Charlie Chaplin ads that were everywhere. Anyone who was, you know, around in the 1980s might remember those. And so they were eating Apple's lunch. And so, so Scully, you know, the suits are brought in. 
Jobs is fired. And then Apple has a pretty dismal decade after that. And Jobs comes back and, and is, is brought back in 1997 as CEO. And then after that, it's up and to the right. And that arc actually, I think, has um, squashed the suits, <laughs> so, so to speak, that the answer. But I think to your question, there is a real, you know, a more conservatism in terms of spending and due diligence. I think, you know, the tail that always wags the valley dog is venture capital, right? Um, what are the VCs doing? What are they hunting? How much, you know, what are they spending on? How much do they have to spend? And they are really kind of driving what, you know, first they're picking the, the winners or the potential winners. And they're also, you know, what they're demanding of, of founders and their portfolio companies will change in a downturn. And there'll be a lot less tolerance for the splashy parties with ice sculptures, <laughs> for sure. This was something that Jason Calacanis brought up on our podcast, mm -hmm. which was, you know, it's easy to criticize a lot of tech companies for expanding too much during the boom. But his point was, this is what investors, i.e. venture capital, was asking of them. They, it was all about growing market share. And it's not until, you know, things start to pull back that there's really that pressure on companies to maybe either start spending money or actually produce a profit. Yeah, that's exactly right. The venture capital world um, is, you know, a lot of these VCs were once operators too, right? So, you know, where do VCs come from? I mean, some of them are have backgrounds in banking, but some of them were founders themselves or people who were, you know, part of the the core teams of companies that were very successful. And then they turn that into the, you know, the high-tech venture capital model, the Silicon Valley style venture capital model that starts in the 60s is is one that is not just money, it's expertise. And it's, and it's importing a very particular type of culture and cultural values that is very growth focused. Moving fast and break things, breaking things has been a Silicon Valley mantra since the early years of the semiconductor industry, because by necessity, you had to move really fast and be incredibly agile and lean and ready to pivot at any moment and moving really aggressively to get a, a chunk of the market. And so that sensibility has uh, driven the, you know, the, the hyper focus on growth. I think that's that, that that's the origins of that. And that, you know, it's and of course, that was an utterly different business than than the what the, the dominant business of Silicon Valley, which, you know, software dom dominant rather than hardware dominant. But nonetheless, I think founders get a lot of heat for excess, but someone gave them the money to do it. So I think it was like the day we met in San Francisco uh, several weeks ago, or maybe the day after, and it was just like the complete implosion of FTX. And the mm -hmm. reason I ask is, you know, one of the other things that's sort of like crumbling here, and again, I don't know if it how cyclical it is, but, you know, I associate Silicon Valley with this, like the cult of the individual, the individual mm -hmm. founder particularly. So the F SBF cult, obviously the Steve Jobs cult, maybe the Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. cult at some point, the Elon Musk cult. Who started that? Where did that come from? The idea, <laughs> Yeah, where did that come from? Well, that has really deep roots. I mean, I think this is, you know, this goes, extends beyond and before the valley itself and a kind of American culture, American political culture, a, a, a nation born of revolution. And uh, that is always 
lifted up and mythologized the, you know, the so-called self-made man, um, you know, the since the 19th century. I mean, the, this has been these, you know, the heroes have been these, these, uh, you know, individual geniuses, whether it be uh, Thomas Edison or, uh, or you know, going forward. And, and of course, the, you know, the real story is whether it's uh, John Wayne style cowboy or the great inventor Edison, they, Yes, you have an an iconic, charismatic, extraordinary individual, but also you have an individual who's got good timing, uh, has connections, has a whole team behind them that is part of an ecosystem. And the the secret of Silicon Valley is the fact that it's this extraordinary ecosystem and networks of people. Again, the you know we think about you know these these founders, whether it be uh, you know Jobs or Musk or you know on and on and on, they're all people who you know of of standout talent that also were lucky and had a had some help and have a team. And I think Jobs and Apple are a really great example. Um, when we go back to the beginning of Apple, it found you know founded in a garage like many a computer startup at that moment, and Jobs and Woz um, were like you know there were a lot of guys doing what they were doing. Some of them were in fact building technically better machines, but what none of those other ones had was Steve Jobs, not Steve Jobs, his own capacity to do all this himself, but the fact that he recognized in his, you know, while he's still walking around barefoot with his beard, that he needed to hire the very best marketing person in the Valley. He needed to get the very best venture capitalists. He needed to get a really good operator with experience who could take them from a garage and turn them into a real company. And that is what he did. And all those people made Apple into what Apple was and allowed Jobs to sort of be the storyteller in chief and be the ultimately the transformative figure he became. Hmm. So I have a slightly different crypto related question. <laughs> but since you brought up since you brought up personal computing, and this is something that stands out in, in your book, this idea that Silicon Valley time and time again kind of frames these new technologies as some sort of revolution. So the personal computer mm-hmm. was going to revolutionize our work lives. The um, dot-com boom was going to revolutionize access to information. Crypto was going to be this big new financial system. And yet with every boom... You know, as we've been discussing, there does tend to be a bust and a lot of disappointment. Can Mm -hmm. the tech sector, can Silicon Valley, like, maintain this revolutionary narrative or this revolutionary idea if people are sort of becoming more experienced with booms and busts? Or maybe it's just me getting older, but Mm -hmm. it, it feels like we've gone through a number of these disappointments at this time. Yeah, we have, but yet we we key up again. Um, you know, the revolutionary declarations are always somewhat o- overblown, but also, you know, think about all the devices we're using, um, even to conduct this conversation, <laughs> and um, they they are, it is extraordinary the the rate of technological growth and development of computer hardware and software in a very short amount of time, and so some of the storytelling and the hype. And the amount of capital that's been infused to make that come to be has, you know, there's there's a there's a there there. You know, it's interesting. And one of the hallmarks of these, you know, the the latest generation of revolutionaries is in a way they're they're answering a problem. They're fixing the errors of a past generation, whether it be 
uh, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates as these new style CEOs rising up like phoenixes out of the ashes of stagflation in the 70s when big business and C-suites of all kinds were pretty unpopular. <laughs> and here's something very, very different, kind of promising to change the world and empower you. Um, these are the new types of business enterprise that are so alluring and in many different ways to politicians and to media and to, to ordinary users and to a kind of baby boomers who are kind of looking for self-actualization in their the things they buy and now have the income to buy it. And if you fast forward, even just looking, you know, reflecting on FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and his very, very rapid downfall, you know, part of his rapid ascent was, you know, Bankman-Fried was not only, you know, you know he's, he's rising at a time when, when the, the, the last generation of Wonder Boys are starting to get more tarnished, right? There's the the tech lash. There's critique of of Zuckerberg and and um, and Bezos and these other people who once were at one time viewed more uh, generally uncritically. And and also, uh, you know, I think SBF was a standout in the crypto world where there were a lot of people that seemed like hustlers, you know, to the outside observer and. Here was someone who seemed more, you know, was proclaiming, you know, he was philanthropic, altruistic, and a lot of blue chip investors and leading VCs bought into that very, in a very, very big way. So, you know, it sounds like another, you know, Tracy asked like, well, okay, you see these booms and busts over the time and there's the tech lash and everything. And then it's like, okay, you know, the sort of like, seems to failed crypto revolution you grow cynical over time but i take it another theme of silicon valley is every downturn people think oh this time it's over like that was the last boom and this is the final bust Yeah, if I had a dollar for every premature obituary <laughs> that's been written, I mean, for over the years, at the end of the 1960s, the uh, the stock market's cooling, um, the 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 defense spending um, that once was driving so much of the really the, almost the entirety of the economy of the valley is contracting, and Vietnam is Vietnam and deeply unpopular, and and so Lockheed, which was the you know. Lockheed, now Lockheed Martin, then just Lockheed, which was, by the way, the biggest employer in the Valley from the mid-50s through the end of the Cold War, its space and missiles division that was down in Sunnyvale. They laid off thousands of workers and there was, you know, local press was like, well, that's it. That was fun. All right. Guess we're guess we're moving on. And the same in the 70s when VCs could just not get, not raise funds at all. There was just no money. They were resorting to desperate measures like licensing their technology to Japanese companies, which 10 years later, they really regretted. But um, even at the in the late 80s, uh, end of the Cold War, you know, defense, you know, again, defense spending contracts dramatically. That was California's thrown into a mini recession in the early 90s because of that, you know, and also the PC market, which was was so hot, had kind of plateaued. And there was no next thing that was clearly there. And then a few years later, you have the commercial internet. <laughs> so, so you know, the, out of the ashes comes something new. But it's very easy to c- declare it's all over. Um, and I, th- and, and, and now what's really interesting, I think what's, I think it is important while we make these historical comparisons to, to show some contrast between then and now. I mean, now we have uh, the scale is much bigger. The impact is much more significant. You know, the, the scale of everything, whether it be hiring or layoffs is much bigger. And the, the way in which these companies are uh, affecting kind of every dimension of 
our lives and and the global economy is is at a scale that is wasn't even present in the dot com boom or bust. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing that's happening now, and you know, we've obviously been focused on the retrenchment of venture capital and private investment, but one thing that's happening now is you have a lot of government investment coming on stream. And you have things like the CHIPS Act, which basically aims billions, if not trillions of dollars at ramping up U.S. chip making capacity and other vital technology capacity and things like that. How much does that like help? in a downturn. Can the government money basically come in and fill the hole left by retrenching venture capital? Mm. It can. Um, well, just generally, you know, independent of, of the commercial boom and bust cycle, government money is absolutely, it's always been a critical thread, a critical part of the Silicon Valley story, a critical part of the history of American technology and technological development. It has, you know, you go, Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. It is what it is because of military spending, which is sometimes a, a weird idea to get your head around when you think of the valley, you think of kind of free market capitalism at its finest. But actually, it has its origins in this defense spending, which created a critical mass of, of sort of small electronics R&D in the valley and and also took Stanford from being kind of a reasonably good mid-level research university into the powerhouse it became. I mean, the people on the ground, including Stanford administrators, were making helping make that happen taking advantage of these new streams of money but what what government does and we see this I, let me pull out the the space program as a great a great example we always talk about you know we need another moonshot well let's talk about the real moonshot and see how that that worked in the the valley political economy because i think sometimes it's easy to sort of say oh it's all free market or when the government comes in it's a you know totally different type of political economy and and in in the case of of the the valley and actually more broadly american um American economic history generally, it's it, it, it's a kind of a blend of public and private that's very distinctive and very American. So, you know, the 60s, you already have a lot of electronic spending in the Valley. Then um, Sputnik rockets into orbit in the fall of 1957. The Soviets get the first satellite into space. They beat 
the U.S. And everybody's hair is on fire. It is it is a huge black eye for the Eisenhower administration. It is it is bad. There's also a great anxiety about reports that the Soviets are outpacing the U.S. and producing missiles, the so-called missile gap that gets Washington in a panic. So the money starts a flowing. There is lots and lots of money coming out. And then Kennedy comes into office and says, we are going to reach the moon by the end of the 1960s. And then all of a sudden there's this intense demand for very small, light, fast electronics, which are exactly what the Valley is specializing in. And so this is really the beginning of the semiconductor industry. The, the true first clusters of startups are, are they're building integrated circuits. They're selling to NASA. But they're, they're doing it. These are, you know, these aren't big lumbering defense contractors. They're startups. And there are a lot of them. And they're competing for this business. And so there's this incredibly competitive industry that is essentially you now have an incentive to to develop and produce a new product that doesn't yet have a commercial market. And and it's put, the government has put a thumb on the scale as a customer and as a as as a uh, funder of research. And it it just drives all of this activity up and down the chain from basic research to applied to universities in companies large and small. And then, you know, the the net net of all that space spending for the semiconductor industry is they went from building these bespoke $2,000 and upward integrated circuits that nobody had a could afford on the, you know, no enterprise could afford or really thought they needed. And it, it, they scale up production. They drive down costs. They're able to kind of turn it into a commodity product. And that's, you know, that's what I think the potential for government spending has. So now as these, we're kind of, Silicon Valley is entering a different age. And you have this new, these new flows, not just for semiconductor research and development, but also green energy, too. That's has a lot of potential. You anticipated my next question, you know, and Tracy yeah. uh, mentioned the CHIPS Act, and then there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to channel a lot of money to green tech. But the common thread of both of those, it's like, okay, part of the reason we seem to be doing green tech is obviously concerns over climate, but there's also a national security impulse even embedded in the Inflation Reduction Act, moving the battery supply chain away from China, moving it to the U.S., this idea that there's some sort of like global competition about energy tech and energy security for obvious reasons. And the thing I'm curious about is how does it work in Silicon, in Silicon Valley when you have this sort of hard-nosed geopolitical security state defense department investment driving the show. How does that interact with sort of like hippie California capitalism? <laughs> uh, it's you, yeah, you wouldn't think these two things coexist, but they do. You know, this is both smart politics and it is real geopolitics, right? That there, there is an, a national security dimension to high tech spending um, and to high-tech competition, particularly now with China, which is sort of this interesting mashup of the the competition that the U.S. had with the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s and the competition it had with Japan in the 80s, <laughs> right? It's kind of this both and. And look, the only part of the discretionary budget 
that the U.S. that has kind of been safe from <laughs> austerity and and shrinkage, uh, particularly in the last forty years, has been the defense budget. There's a reason that DARPA has this outsized role in fueling innovation in the Valley um, because it's been the kind of the one blue sky research funder that hasn't been kind of had its budget you know questioned every every cycle. Uh, so I you know there it, it it there's it makes sense there there's you know putting calling this a defense move um, does make it in a way politically insulated in a way and kind of creates this allowance for the great deal of spending that does need to happen to move the needle. But the hippie culture and the defense culture that yeah, that's it's a it's a it's always had that weird juxtaposition, quite honestly. And I think, you know, part of why it's able to do that is because of the essentially the indirect nature of so much of the spending. And this is, again, going back to this kind of quintessentially American (laughs) habit of not liking big government, not wanting to appear to have big government. And so instead Spending for economic development in particular through indirect means, whether it be in the early 19th century awarding, um, you know, private entities, the, you know, uh, contracts to, you know, build canals and infrastructure and turnpikes or or the transcontinental railroads, right, in the 1860s and 70s, which was a kind of a boondoggle, but it got those railroads built or fast forward to the defense economy, you know, the Cold War military industrial complex, uh, Eisenhower called it military industrial for a reason. The money was flowing from the government through industry and universities and these other private and educational institutions so that the the guys in the beanbags <laughs> or the kids in the computer lab at Berkeley or Stanford weren't necessarily immediately aware of the fact that Everything they was doing was being enabled by defense spending, which, you know, in the late 1960s, a lot of those kids at Berkeley and Stanford suddenly realized that was what was <laughs> making it all go. And that was part of why they were protesting and marching against the war. They they saw the the among other things that the military had essentially taken control of technology and was using it for ends of which they did not approve. So just on this theme, the the intermingling of free market entrepreneurship and government spending, which is definitely a theme that that stands out in in your book, and you emphasize this point a lot. But in in a downturn where venture capital is potentially retrenching and the government is ramping up its spending, is there a possibility that more traditional businesses become bigger or more powerful compared to, you know, the traditional Silicon Valley tech startup because they have access to maybe deeper pockets or because maybe they have closer relationships with the U.S. government. Is that a possibility that we start to see a sort of shift in power, I guess? Hmm. I mean, Tesla, um... like Tesla versus a traditional car maker would be the obvious example of this, right? Yeah, yeah, possibly. But there are a couple of things that work against that. One is if the government purpose of government spending is to incentivize and grow new markets and new technologies and to kind of bring bring new technologies online that are now just good ideas or really expensive and impractical ideas. <laughs> Oftentimes it's new firms and new entrants that are needed to do that. Again, the, you know, this is why, you know, Companies like Fairchild Semiconductor and National Semiconductor get the edge on 
um, you know, get the Apollo program business because the big incumbents couldn't do it. I think the other thing that's in play, and we saw this a bit in the space program too, which is that that spending's ramping up at the same time that um, this is when Robert McNamara was Secretary of Defense for the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations. McNamara later becomes kind of the, the, the face of the Vietnam War in not a good way. <laughs> but in the beginning, he comes in, he comes in from Ford. He was the president of Ford, and he was part of a group known as the Whiz Kids at Ford that were these number-crunching efficiency experts. And he came in, he's like, we got to make this whole contracting more efficient. And he actually wanted to kind of get away from single source contracting and kind of bring more oxygen into the system and get more more people, more more firms competing for the business so that it would drive down costs. And and that's part of actually created this opportunity for these small companies. What's happening right now, I think in a, a kind of analogous way, is one of the things that the both the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act are trying to solve for is the intense geographic concentration of tech on the two coasts, right? So within that, you know, we have this new spending that's kind of regionally focused to build tech-focused economies in places that don't have them. And also, you know, putting chip plants in Ohio, right? Like there's this sort of very deliberate economic development strategy going on. We saw some of this, in, uh, quite a bit of this in the early Cold War too. I mean, the, the Southern states and Sunbelt states that also happen to have some pretty powerful senators, hello, Richard Russell of Georgia, uh, that, you know, that got these defense facilities that were transformative for the economy, right? So there was sort of this geographic strategy that the Biden administration and um uh, those uh, that sort of are, are trying to uh, kind of push out. And there's a lot of, yeah, obviously, a lot of local leadership and regions that have been left behind in, in many ways, particularly formerly industrial regions in the, in the Midwest and elsewhere that are you know, really trying to build out their infrastructure. So I'm looking to see kind of what that does to um, kind of disrupts this geographic pattern that's so intensely concentrated. Margaret O'Mara, thank you so much for uh, coming on Odd Lot. So glad uh, we got to have this conversation. It was really fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Margaret. To you. Yeah, that was great. Tracy, I really like talking to Margaret. You know, one thing that is very useful with the historical perspective is this time it's different or this time it's really over, that that's like a pervasive view, that mm. it's not just now, it's not just post.com, that from the very beginning, people always think, oh, that was it. That was the last boom bust. There, one day there will be another boom. Well, I agree with that. I do wonder whether or not like people's experiences tend to be tempered by the disappointments of the last downturn, but maybe not because I mean, here we are in 2022 and all of crypto is falling apart. People have been comparing that to the dot-com boom yeah. for ages. So clearly memories of dot-com era well, They eventually fade, right? Like, that was like 20 years ago. It feels like only yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But also like her example of whether or not it starts to affect culture with yeah. the um, the Pepsi CEO that yeah. was brought in Forgot about that guy. for Apple. That was pretty funny. Yeah. And just, you know, again, like what the, the saving, I don't know if it's the saving grace or 
you know, where, where would you be bullish right now? You'd probably be bullish on the areas that could sell something to the U.S. government, something that might have like a defense capacity, something that might have an energy capacity, something that might have right. a semiconductor capacity, et cetera. So there will be new markets, but maybe the exciting things are not going to be as consumer oriented as we got from the boom in the 2010s. Right. It kind of reminds me of that market's mantra, don't fight the Fed, right? Like, Ooh, yeah, don't like, don't fight the U.S. government when it's pouring trillions of dollars of, of money into particular Don't like, fight the Pentagon. There we go, yeah. Don't fight the DOE loan. Don't fight Jiggershot, the DOE loan program. Do, don't fight the military yeah. industrial complex. That is good life advice. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Margaret O'Mara. She's at Margaret O'Mara. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And... If you want more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where Tracy and I post the transcripts, we blog, and we even write a weekly newsletter. Go there, subscribe, and read it. And I wanted to let you know about a special event that we're holding for listeners. My co-host Tracy Alloway and I will be speaking with past guest Josh Younger, as well as Columbia Law Professor Lev Menand in a special live episode of the Odd Lots podcast on November 29th. We're going to be holding it at Bloomberg HQ, and you're welcome to come, mingle, join. We're going to have cocktails, canapes, and other stuff on that day, along with the live recording. So if you're interested in attending a live episode of the Odd Lots podcast, as well as meeting me and Tracy, as well as meeting our guests, and as well as meeting other Odd Lots listeners, go find the RSVP. Both Tracy and I have tweeted about it. It's also on Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots. Sign up. And join us in New York City at Bloomberg HQ on November 29th. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.